Nadia Sullenberg presents Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Sullenberg. Beyond the Limit's Edge. Off the Back. With Europe staging the most prestigious of all annual cycling road races during the first decades of the 20th century, Italian immigrants Marcel and Enzo Bacconi organized their own race on American soil, known as the Tour of Appalachia. Enzo Bacconi sought to build and grow a race of equal merit and challenge, while his brother, Marcel Bacconi, was all but consumed by monetary gain, an aim he pursued through deceit and penny-pinching as well as the abduction of a child laborer, whom, instead of helping, labeled sick and dying, all in the name of fundraising and promotion. The first tour of Appalachia ran in 1934 and was viewed by the community at large as an indubitable triumph. Unfortunately, questions regarding the event's stability and the intent of its promoter cast a dark shadow over the success of its inaugural run. A photo finish is worth a thousand words. Angelo Rossi of Italy took the top step of the podium in the first ever tour of Appalachia in 1934. Newspapers across the globe reported his commanding victory from Atlanta to New York, over daunting mountain passes and through serene valleys. Rossi finished over an hour ahead of the second place rider, Jacobus Dameron from Belgium third place went to Benito Palazzo. Appearing alongside reports of grueling climbs and wheel-to-wheel sprints was a photo of Rossi, taken by legendary photographer Vivian Porter, standing next to the Pulitzer Fountain in Grand Army Square off of New York Central Park, caked with dust and blowing a kiss to the crowd. Joining him were race organizers Marcel and Enzo Bacconi, as well as Marcel's golden tyke and the child's presumed nurses. In a 1974 interview for Italian television shot at his coastal villa in Sorrento, iconic race director Enzo Bacconi said the following. So we're all standing there in front of the photographers and Marcel's got the kid on his shoulder. Optics, he called it. And the girls are there. I'm sorry, nurses. Right. He picked up those girls at a hootenanny outside Lawrenceburg. Told him he was a czar or something. He certainly didn't look like a czar. He looked more like a magician, or some kind of villain. The kind that tie a woman to a set of train tracks like in those old tunes. He told him that the tour was his personal caravan en route to New York and that all the people on the sides were cheering him. Did you know that he insisted on leading out every stage? Then he'd pull over and have us pick him up. He'd get in the back of the convertible, had to be a convertible, and you know the girls are there waiting. He dressed them up in these crass nurses uniforms. I'd say, you really think that's appropriate? He'd tell me to buzz off or something like that and usually lick his finger and stick it in my ear. And of course, the kid was there too. And Marcel would just sit there, waving to the people like it was a ticker tape parade. I mean, he really ate it up. I think he thought it was all for him. And I don't mean it was one of those things where he knew it wasn't but pretended like it was. I mean, 40 years later, I honestly think my brother thought the whole damn thing was for him. 
After LaRoe pulled in Rossi by nearly a minute on the finishing climb of the Abigail Falls stage and everyone was cheering, oh, the place was roaring. Marcel leaned over the front seat and said all funny-like, was it something I said? And he was serious. At the end there in New York during the ceremony, I had to whisper Angelo Rossi's name in his ear. He didn't even know who won. Rossi, he said. Who's Rossi? I hate that photo. The now notorious photo seen by millions, although a memorialized achievement for the world of cycling, would begin to call into question the race's charitable legitimacy and the integrity of its governing body. Tour of Appalachia historian Martin Hatchfield wrote the following in his book, Two Brothers, One Tour. Immediately following the fanfare of the first tour, Marcel Bacconi found himself in a battle with adolescence as Cecil Klein, otherwise known by Mr. Bacconi as Dying Boy, entered a rapid growth spurt. By dressing him in rather large clothing, Marcel Bacconi had managed to convince the public for a short while that Cecil was shrinking and that the funds raised by the event were given to the Tiny No More Foundation, which was, of course, fraudulent. The chairman of the charity was a man by the name of Klaus Friedrich. Years later, researchers would uncover a photo of this virtually unknown figure. It was clearly Marcel Bacconi in makeup, and rather poor makeup at that. The photo displays a disturbing lack of eyebrows. During the second annual tour of Appalachia, as Cecil Klein grew, questions began to arise concerning his apparent illness. Marcel tried dressing him in larger clothes and even hired a special tailor from Milan. Unfortunately for Marcel Bacconi, nothing could be done to conceal Cecil Klein's deepening voice, which was evident when the young boy sang. Cecil Klein reportedly loved to sing, a love he discovered during his time at the mine. Claude Bellamy, a tour steward between 1934 and 1938, said, The child had a beautiful voice, a rich, full baritone. We would hear him and know the organizer's car was approaching. Ah, we loved it. I tell you though, for a shrinking boy, he certainly had some big pipes. A Field of Frauds The next four years of the race were riddled with issues. With the Tour of Spain introduced in 1935, just a month before the problematic second Tour of Appalachia, which ran under a shroud of skepticism, the unofficial American Grand Tour, even in the early going, was losing both attention and validity among the cycling community and its governing bodies, and had found itself in a state of undeniable backpedaling. And with the press's unending questions regarding the legitimacy of Cecil Klein's illness and a number of ongoing investigations, the 1936 tour witnessed the debut of cheating, which began with harmless occurrences mostly isolated to individual riders before building gradually in intensity. A stage four incident saw Kentucky cyclist Tolbert McIntyre break off from the main field and commandeer a crop dusting plane, which he flew to the finishing town of Walker Mill in Virginia. There was also Belgian rider Felix Van Demi, who took an inclined railway to the summit of North Carolina's Mainer Mountain. On stage 17, Luxembourger Michael Danberg paid an Ohio Wrangler $17 to take him across the Allegheny Plateau on horseback. Mere infractions compared to what lay ahead for the race, as the following year would see the launch of full-scale team conspiracies. 
During the 1937 tour, all eight riders from the French team were caught taking a passenger train from Culver Springs to Hamilton, where they were spotted in the first-class dining car by journalist Robert Vance and several members of the USA team. On stage 14, a sprinter stage, the newly welcomed German team created a moving roadblock when they linked arms and took up the entire width of the road one kilometer from the line, preventing any rider from advancing. On the second to final stage from Laurel Plains, Pennsylvania to Chautauqua Hollow, New York, the Spanish team disguised assistants from their own team as assistants from the Italian team and placed them in the crowd to dispense fake musette bags or feed bags to their competitors. Some of the bags were filled with sandwiches containing rancid mayonnaise and cans of food with no pull tab. Others simply contained shredded newspaper. A journalist from Ridgeport a stage town along the route, reported in his article the following day that one of the bags contained a fake, generic, but effective Dear John letter with explicit details involving a secret male lover. And as tensions rose across the globe, the 1938 tour witnessed an increase in ruthlessness. On the dirt road descent from Crocker's Lookout on stage 11, Eugene Meekle from Team USA released a pouch of nails along the road. Later on in the tour, he paid several spectators to jump out in front of his competitors and shove sticks in their spokes, while his teammate, Ralph the Whip Sullivan, would strike the other riders openly with a switch. Physical brawls among riders, as well as spectators, soon became commonplace. In 1939, during the climb on Topper's Ridge, a fistfight between teams Italy and France broke out after French superstar Philippe Michoud struck Italian rider Dario Pavanello in the face with his glove. The hilltop free-for-all would be called the Tussle on Topper's Ridge and would be considered by many war historians as the first official conflict of World War II in the American theater. To make matters worse, these years on the tour were plagued with illegal gambling. It was not unusual to see riders sprinting for the line at half speed or really hamming up a loss for journalists. Champion cyclist and 16-time Grand Tour stage winner Teddy Exall spoke of this turbulent period for the tour in the 2002 award-winning cycling documentary, Chasing History. 39 was a justly rough year for the Appalachian, which was more or less on life support since that first tour. The probing into the charity, the cheating. The tour of Appalachia was where you sent riders that weren't pulling their weight, you know, or getting wins. The team directors sent riders to the states in June who required disciplinary action. I mean, that's how bad it was. Nobody wanted to be there. Riders did anything to make the experience tolerable. One year on a stage from Asheville to Big Stone Gap, a few riders from several different teams dropped off the back of the peloton and later retired from the race after locating a hidden whiskey still. I don't think the cycling world was too surprised when the newspapers reported Marcel Bacconi's involvement in the gambling. Involvement. I'm being generous. The man ran the entire thing, and used a phony non-profit operating out of the basement of a New Jersey church as a front. I mean, this guy was something else. And if things couldn't get any stranger, that same month, Cecil Klein, the tour's quote-unquote poster child, got a recording contract with Viotone Records. His first album, From the Mind to the Road, was an instant hit. Radio stations played it every half hour. There in the beginning, he was the face of the tour. Maybe he should have been the voice. And unfortunately for Marcel Bacconi, when Cecil sang, he sang like a canary. 
especially in his popular singles, I Ain't Nobody's Meal Ticket, and Tried Stunting My Growth with Copperfield Cigarettes. And that was it for Marcel Bacconi. In fact, most people thought that was it for the tour of Appalachia. It takes a Bacconi. After his years of disreputable and duplicitous dealings were disclosed on the front page of the Lexington Daily Review, under the headline, Disgrace Tour Founder Takes Header, and with other papers soon to follow with similar publications, Marcel Bacconi began his rapid fall from questionable grace. The 33-year-old cycling entrepreneur was ruined. Legal battles and the liquidation of assets, which included a mountaintop mansion with cherry-stained floors, decadent faux-wood furnishings, an impressive Pappy Sutter chandelier made from amassed animal antlers, and his prized black bear, stuffed and wearing sunglasses posed on a standing bicycle, had left Marcel Bacconi penniless and his whereabouts unknown. Former friend and professional cyclist Benjamin McKinney said the following. Nobody knew quite where he went. It was like he just vanished. There were rumors he was trying to start up a tour on the West Coast. Someone said he moved overseas. I had heard from Jack Ellsworth he was working up in Chicago, bathing the wax figures at Tillerson's new attraction. Any of those would have been better than the hell he wound up in. I found him outside Townsburg, working at a coal mine. The same one where we found Cecil, in fact. His hair was completely white, and his skin was all shriveled up like a prune. He looked like an 80-year-old man, and he had only been gone for a couple weeks. He was wearing this filthy, old, tattered cloth around his neck. Yeah, like a cape. And he had three hard hats stacked on top of one another on his head. When I spoke to him, he didn't know who I was. He just kept going on about needing to get back to his Zaristas or wives in New York or something. He started naming them off one by one with this blank, sort of deranged expression. When I spoke to the foreman at the mine, they didn't know who he was. Said he just showed up and started shoveling coal and mumbling to himself. He said they didn't ask too many questions because he... I want to say it how he said it. Because he kept the rats away. The fate of the tour was in jeopardy. Until an eminent New York City cycling journalist named Alexander O'Neill famously wrote in a 1939 article published in the sports newspaper The Summit. O'Neill wrote... If it takes a Bacconi to tear down the race that could have been, then maybe it takes a Bacconi to build it back up. It was that single quote that began the ideas which would eventually lead to the restoration of faith in the tour, among both the cycling community and the public at large. Still, it would be a long road to hoe, taking two years of campaigning and fundraising, with support from the wallets of some of the nation's wealthiest cycling fans. Most notably, there was the automotive giant from Michigan, Sig Abbott, and American financer Oscar Potter. With global travel curtailed after the start of World War II in September 1939, the absence of the European Grand Tours due to a German-occupied France, and an all-around war-torn continent, Enzo Bacconi, tired of the fighting and reading of his fellow cyclists attacking each other on the battlefield instead of the famed Mont Ventoux in France or the Witch's Backbone in West Virginia, planned to unite the countries with the grand revival of his once-beloved race. 
the reimagined and reinvigorated tour of Appalachia, was staged for June of 1942 and would do away with national teams and instead focus on individual triumph. It was a utopian vision of global equality in a world divided, a vision that would sadly take a back wheel to the very struggle it sought to escape as the United States entered the fight in December of 1941. Production, both man and machine, dove headlong into the war effort. Competitive cycling across the globe all but ceased. And although many of the sports athletes would go off to fight, with an untold number of them laying down their lives, countless heroes from the world of cycling would continue to represent their countries, seeking the glory of a different kind. The tour of Appalachia would have to wait. After the war, while the once steadfast mecca for cycling that was Europe began to ration and rebuild, the cherished grand tours of France, Italy, and Spain operated on a tight, if not non-existent budget, relying on individual contribution, and for the most part served as mere boosts in public morale. Meanwhile, back across the Atlantic, the production powerhouse that had been the United States during the war continued its efforts and entered a post-war commercial boom, which would eventually lead to decades of corporate prosperity. Enzo Bacconi, now with a host of backers, would seize the opportunity and jump straight into the cycling spotlight. It would be the dawn of a flourishing new era, one fueled by sponsorship and ruled by both the bottom line and the racing line. This has been a production of Thaddeus Ellenberg's Casual Friday. Written and read by Thaddeus Ellenberg. With an introduction by Nicole Kalasich. And artwork by Adrian Lobel. This series is independently produced by Thaddeus Ellenberg and Will Scovel. To find more episodes and information, visit our website at casualfridaypodcast.org or email us at contact.casualfriday at gmail.com. 